Hello there, my name is Gary Gerani. Uh, I'm a screenwriter and film historian, uh, filmmaker these days, uh, and your host for this uh, very, very good hour episode of Night Gallery, uh, made up of two episodes. One is a definite total classic, the other is quite good in its own right, so this added up to a very, very good hour installment. We're in the second season right now of Night Gallery, and uh, the opening credits are pretty much the same, but with slight difference in the opening theme, which was made a little bit more aggressive. Gil Malay kind of amped it up a little in season two. Um, our first story here is a very, very effective and moody and involving piece called The Phantom Farmhouse. By the way, this, was, this episode was originally aired, I should say this hour was originally aired October 20th, 1971, and I was there at the time, uh, very much into the show, following it since it first came along. Uh, I had done the two-hour um, commentary for the two-hour pilot, and then it was launched as a, a semi-regular series. There were six episodes that were part of the four-in-one rotating series, and here we are in season two, uh, and Night Gallery is finally a full-fledged weekly series, 10 p.m., and it's... Uh, quickly establishing its own identity in Season 2. Uh, we didn't have those little funny blackouts in Season 1. I'm not sure the show was, uh, you know, made any better by them. Uh, but they did add a new uh, angle to it. By the way, uh, speaking of angles, very, very nice uh, uh, camera work here by director Jean Swart as we are establishing where we are and what's going on. Uh, we are at uh, the... Uh, Delphinium House, which uh, is, uh, as opposed to Blair Cliff Sanitarium, which is what uh, the place was called in the original short story. Uh, that short story uh, took place in Maine. This is obviously somewhere in California. Uh, and speaking of that short story, we'll get into it all through this episode as we talk about the changes that were made. Uh, but in general, the haunted farmhouse itself and the rather interesting inhabitants of the phantom farmhouse remain almost exactly uh, pretty much as written by the original writer of the uh, short story, Seabury uh, Quinn, uh, who was a regular writer for Weird Tales, one of, was one of the most popular uh, writers for Weird Tales. We will, like I say, we'll get into that a little further on. And it's interesting because Weird Tales were, were those uh, classic pulp uh, stories that Universal had this interesting relationship with because they started adapting them uh, with the Thriller series in the early 60s, and they sort of kept at it. Uh, let's uh, take a look at what's happening here dramatically. The various characters that are being introduced um, are pretty much our wraparound characters. Like I mentioned, uh, uh, this episode kind of reinvented the wraparound story, and almost all of these characters that we're looking at here are not in the original story. Uh, certainly the character that uh, David Carradine is playing, who was the source of all this interest at the moment, uh, is, uh, was not in the story at all. He's kind of like an aging hippie guy, but he has a direct connection to the supernatural events that will be going on in the story. Uh, the other fellow that we saw complaining about him just a little while ago when he smashed his guitar... Uh, that, that was a character appropriately named Mr. Grouch, who was not in the original story, and he's played by Ray Ballard. I mentioned him only because he it was originally in uh, a previous night gallery, the pilot. Uh, he's the guy that's um, 
caught in a traffic jam in the Steven Spielberg segment, Eyes, and asks the cop for direction. Anyway, speaking of cops, here we have the plot moving along as uh, we see uh, the actor Ford Rainey playing the sheriff, and uh, we've seen Ford Rainey for, you know, ages. I mean, he, he guy that came out of the stage, but got his first movie was actually White Heat. Uh, but, well, you know, fans of TV science fiction will remember him uh, as the DA in the Outer Limits episode, iRobot, that was a second season show. And he also played the President of the United States in the Lost in Space pilot, who's talking about this amazing adventure that the Robinsons are going off on. And Dr. Smith, meanwhile, is watching him making this broadcast and kind of sneering. Anyway, what's happened here dramatically, and this was also added uh, for the story, is that the, uh, the police are investigating... Uh, a savage murder, uh, where someone who was, you know, a part of this group who has just been killed, apparently by wild animals, but it seems also to be a murder, and suspicion is falling on David McCallum, uh, excuse me, on, on David Carradine, uh, because of his connection to this person who's just been killed, and we're going to be seeing how Carradine's character uh, is linked to the supernatural events, as I mentioned. Let's talk a moment about David McCallum, since I just brought him up. Uh, he is playing Dr. Joel Winter. He is our protagonist, and he's sort of like the, the main therapist here, uh, and is these are all of his patients. Uh, the girl directly above him, sitting on that yellow thing, is actually his, his assistant, and she'll play a part in the story as well, Betty. Uh, but what's happening here is we're just seeing... Uh, he's talking about how he sees this incredible farmhouse and the amazing people that live in it. Of course, he's talking about a ruin. And he says, that's where the victim went, and uh, that's kind of where I sent, sent him. And we're going to find out, ultimately, the whole point of this character is that he's kind of a pimp for werewolves. I mean, we know this is a werewolf story. I'm sure we know this ahead of time. Uh, most of us who are watching this, anyway. And uh, we kind of find out he's sending them victims, and he's kind of doesn't serve a purpose in the story other than that, and to set things up so that we can get our our main character, who's the David McCallum character, uh, into into the action, so to speak. Um, there's a quick bit about David McCallum. He was born in Scotland, and he's obviously famous for NCIS and The Man from Uncle. Uh, but made many, many great movies. Billy Budd, A Night to Remember, Freud, he's wonderful in Freud, The Great Escape, of course, was a great opportunity for him. Um, and he's done many interesting spooky or sci-fi kind of roles. He's in the TV movie Hauser's Memory, uh, which was done by Universal around this time, and it's, it was kind of a few years earlier, but it was uh, kind of a quasi-reworking of Donovan's brain. And uh, he's also in Frankenstein, The True Story, a great role in that. Uh, and eventually, The Invisible Man is a series. It was a very brief series. Uh, I actually wrote an article about that, The Man from Unseen, when it originally came out. Uh, that didn't quite quite work out. It was an ambitious uh, project. And, of course, he's also famous uh, for fans of The Outer Limits uh, for the couple of classic episodes that he did, including The Sixth Finger, where he becomes the man of the future. So now our, our plot is kind of moving along, and, and uh, the David McCallum character, uh, Dr. Winter, is intrigued by these stories uh, attached to the ruins of what apparently is a 200-year-old farmhouse. Um, 
a nice stock shot there from the Universal Library. I think it turns up in the Incredible Hulk pilot, if I'm not mistaken, when the Hulk is first returning to his human form in, in that pilot episode. Very evocative uh, use of the environment, particularly during the day. It is unfortunate when things turn dark that uh, I've always had a joke about this show, which I really love Night Gallery, but I often would call it Day for Night Gallery, because so many of the night scenes were shot in daylight and they tried to fake it, and doesn't always work. I mean, you kind of try. I'm going to deal with this a little later on as we... Uh, get through the episode. This is supposed to be daylight, uh, so there, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, it, it, what we have here is a very rational man uh, who is suddenly, uh, in the best Rod Serling kind of way, he suddenly takes that wrong turn and he enters another world here. Let me, and this is the Phantom, this is the star of our episode. Uh, let me call attention to the um, wonderful music that we're hearing right now, which this, you know, incredible two-note theme really captures uh, the feeling, uh, what I call, it's a very sad two-note theme, it sort of suggests the resignation of pain. And we'll hear it again and again in the Night Gallery series, uh, used very, very effectively uh, over and over again. Uh, Swark is really, really good. He's moving the camera slowly. He, he wants us to feel what our protagonist here is feeling uh, as he takes all this in and starts to kind of deal with stuff. I want to explain a little bit about the original story. Oh, by the way, you know, it's, it, the composer of, of, of this wonderful music I've been talking about is uh, Oliver Nelson. And Oliver Nelson was, uh, did a lot of work for Universal. Uh, and did some of his best work for, for this series. But let's talk a little bit more about Seabury Quinn, the original writer of this story. And again, he was famous for weird tales, and specifically uh, for the character he created, uh, Jules de Grandin, who was uh, an occult detective, and in many ways was kind of the basis of the character that Louis Jordan played in Fear No Evil and Ritual of Evil, they were trying to pilot off a series, uh, spin off a series from those uh, TV movie pilots. Uh, and again, as I say, Universal had this relationship with Weird Tales in general. They would constantly be, uh, so it's, it's kind of an, sort of surprising to me they finally didn't do a series with a character, kind of like, in a sense, they sort of did in a roundabout way, ultimately, with The Sixth Sense and Coljack. But no, no, I would have thought they would have used a genuine uh, uh, Weird Tales, a cult detective, or at least the David Sorrell character who was created in that style. By the way, we are seeing here uh, uh, the actor Ivor Francis as Pierre, and uh, he's basically kind of saying, hey, there's no house out there. We're going to be getting more stuff from Pierre as this goes along. Pierre actually was a character in the original story. Uh, so even though it's the Phantom Farmhouse and the people who live there who were, who were adapted for this, he is, Pierre is the only other character that kind of, kind of sticks around for this adaptation. Um, oh, and just for the moment, I mean, he's going to come back. He's, he's quite good. Uh, but he's also in um, Night Gallery's Little Girl Lost and uh, The Eyes of Charles Sand, The Night Strangler as Dr. Webb. Uh, and, you know, he was a character actor that got around. Uh, and while we've got David Carradine here, let's talk about him for a second. This very fascinating character, like I say, a, a kind of pin for whales, a procurer, born 1936, died 2009, uh, of accidental asphyxiation, apparently. 
Uh, and of course, he comes from the parody acting family, which is which is legendary. Um, we'll get back into him a little bit more, but right now we have our introduction to our leading lady. And if we're struck first by her beauty and then perhaps by her strange uh, hairstyle, which kind of looks <sighs> a little deliberately unreal uh, because of what she transforms into and the nature of of this story, it's actually appropriate. And if we're sort of, go if our first reaction is, huh? Um, we're supposed to feel that way. But instantly we see the, the chemistry going on. This is a Romeo and Juliet story, so to speak. It's not entirely that. There aren't really opposing forces between the two lovers other than one is real and the other is ghost. Uh, but Seabury Crib did something very interesting in, in this story because it's not only a ghost story, uh, but it's also a werewolf story. And then it's even more than that because it's kind of more of a were-dog story. Uh, it's very, very clear, even though they're going to be talking about werewolves and Lugarub and all that whole type of thing, uh, these particular werewolves, who are also ghosts, <laughs> uh, transform into dogs. And this is important when it comes to her. In the short story, uh, the protagonist even mentions that, that she reminds him of a, of a collie that he used to have. Uh, I love this shot, the way it's set up with the rope, creating a kind of split-screen effect. Uh, these people are from two different worlds. I love the performance. The actress uh, here is Linda Marsh, and we should talk about her for a second, but 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 examine her performance here. Uh, she's a predatory being because she and her parents, who we were going to be meeting shortly, are indeed were-dogs, if you will. Uh, but we see the beginnings of her attraction to him. It's an interesting combination of predatory interest, but also something more. Of course, our attention is drawn to... Uh, her fingers and the strangeness of her middle finger, which is, of course, key to the uh, werewolf lore, which he'll be hearing a little bit more about. Hearing her parents, by the way, it's interesting, David McCallum reacting to strange digits with his sixth finger history. But anyway, the parents are wonderful. Uh, right away, we can see there's something. I mean, it's all American stock, as David McCallum's character points out, Gideon points out. Great bit with the hands. I mean, that's just supposed to be like juice from grapes or whatever. Uh, but, wow, it speaks volumes. Also, her look. Uh, we should talk about these actors for a moment, because it's Gail Bonney here as Mrs. Squire. This is the Squire family. In the story, they are the squires, uh, with an S. In the in in the TV adaptation, it's simply squire. Anyway, that's Gail Bonney as the mother, and she's just wonderful with that look that says, you know, I want your blood, but hey, I'm I'm just a mom and I'm a friend too. Great thing that she's doing there, uh, and she had many many uncredited small parts, but she was also uh, started off playing. Uh, Good Wife Martin in the 1954 Space Patrol TV series. And she did all kinds of roles. She's got a nice part in Bigger Than Life, which is a terrific movie. Uh, she's one of the people in the audience in The Tingler. Uh, she's also in House of the Dead episode of One Step Beyond. And uh, she was the second witch in the Catspaw episode of Star Trek. So she certainly <laughs> had some basic training. And Martin Ash is Mr. Squire. Um, and he's also a character actor who's done a lot. We see here what is going on here as, as this interesting relationship 
is developing. And uh, there is a line here which she explains. We, it's a line retained from the story where he overhears her talking to her family in the house saying, this one is mine. Go to your own hunting or something like that. And uh, she explains we're just hunters and sometimes we argue about the prey we go after. Of course, we're already kind of adding all this up. Um, here is what uh, director Joel Bender used to call the library scene, which most movies do have a scene where a lot of the lore or the background of whatever fantasy legends are being explored are kind of brought out. By the way, that is Trina Parks as Betty. And the Betty character is uh, David McCallum, the, the psychiatrist. She's his assistant. And she sort of has a mild crush on him. This is not really brought out too strongly, nor should it be. Uh, but it plays into the plot to some degree because it's it's a mirror of the uh, the main relationship in the story that can't possibly work out. Um, in this case, it can't work out with the assistant, uh, mainly because she will become a victim pretty soon. This is something that was changed dramatically from the short story, which really, for the TV episode, they needed a body count. Uh, which doesn't really happen in in the episode, uh, excuse me, in the short story. I mean, this episode begins where the cops are coming over to say someone's been murdered in a very terrible, horrible way, um, and there'll be another killing uh, before the uh, relationship, such as it is, reaches its, you know, consummation moment, if you will. Uh Oh, and by the way, that's Bill Quinn as Dr. Tom, uh, who is the voice of reason, uh, New York City actor, did a lot of, a lot of early TV work, in important films, uh, and he also, you know, was in One Step Beyond, and the Alfred Hitchcock shows, The Munsters, Batman, uh, he's a dark intruder, uh, he also turns up in Twilight Zone, the movie, and Star Trek, The Final Frontier, as Dr. McCoy's father. So he always kind of projected this sort of scientific, uh, uh, you know, authoritarian kind of a feel. But basically, we get this amusing uh, explanation of uh, lycanthropy or, or, you know, the whole werewolf thing. Like, they discuss it as a hormone-created uh, form of insanity. Uh, and that whole bit with the pentagram, of course, uh, appears on the, on the palms of people connected. We remember this from the old Lon Chaney Jr., the Wolfman, uh, who could see the pentagram in the hand of his next victim. Well, uh, our made-up character, Gideon, uh, uh, played by David Carradine, uh, one day woke up and found these marks on his hands. Of course, he'd been procuring for werewolves for a while, so I guess that, uh, that just ties in with it. But it's important to, always to have a, uh, a story, uh, excuse me, a scene like this uh, to ground the story in some kind of uh, reality. By the way, wonderful cinematic shot here as more of the lure. Uh, first, we're going to be finding sheep, what killed the sheep. Uh, it's kind of weird that we have shepherds like from another age uh, in the middle of California, uh, you know, at, at this... Uh, at this clinic, this outdoor clinic, but we do. Um, I should mention in the original story that the protagonist, and this is very significant, was not a psychiatrist. He's at such a place recuperating from a breakdown. Uh, he's a clergyman. His name is John Weatherby. Uh, and 
the whole idea of recuperating from something and then you go through some mystical adventure, there's always the suggestion that it was all in his mind. Well, that, that number is not played here at all. Uh, and uh, it's probably better for not doing that. Instead, by making the lead, the David McCallum character, a man of science, not a man of faith, uh, that's going to pay off a little later on. It's a very, very, very uh, canny move. Uh, it also just makes sense in general to, to tie all the characters of the story together in, in a somewhat, you know, more relatable way for the kind of audience that would be would be watching this. Um, again, we're getting the kind of werewolf lure here that we would um, usually find in uh, you know movies like The Curse of the Werewolf or other period pieces. Um, Frank, that's Frank Arnold, by the way, is the shepherd, and he, again, I love those shots. I mean, John O'Swark was a huge movie fan and tried his best to make his episodes a little more cinematic. Uh, the fellow who, again, was just telling the story, the shepherd, is seen briefly in Casablanca. He's also in Flesh and Fantasy, and is very convincing, very convincing. We linger on her here because we want to... Um, see her genuine concern and also the suggestion of someone who might have uh, more interest in him than meets the eye. Meanwhile, of course, McCallum is probing uh, deeper and deeper into this mystery, and uh, the deeper he probes, the more bizarre things are going to get. These are particularly wonderful shots, um, better than usual, even for this episode. Uh, they were set up very, very carefully. In the original story, uh, Weatherby, the clergyman, witnesses what we're seeing here, which are the, uh, the dogs attacking the sheep. Um, and he's with someone who does see it, which helps to, uh, which I guess was the replacement for the Betty character. But she survives in the short story. Like I say, it's not a body count short story. But Night Gallery needed to have more killing going on. It's kind of interesting because we catch the quick glimpse here of the wolves, the two larger, darker ones, and then the one light one. And we think of the three inhabitants of the Phantom Farmhouse, and we immediately begin to say, okay, that's the family in their were-dog form, if you will. I want to talk a moment about this kind of story, and it's very compelling. I mean, mortals falling in love with fantasy characters can be done on so many different levels. I mean, you have your Little Mermaid and your Portrait of Jenny and uh, Little, Ma Little Mermaid, its original form is actually a very sad story. A lot of these are, are sad because they're wish fulfillment. Uh, but then you have the offshoot of the genre where the love story is with someone who is deadly dangerous and might kill you. It's kind of interesting, around the same time, I guess probably the granddaddy of those kinds of stories was, was the original Cat People with Simone Simone. And you're in love with this woman, but is she out to get you? What's going on here? You know, fantasy romances always kind of play into our needs. Uh, many of us science fiction horror fans were kind of nerdy kids, and we always hoped we could find some beautiful, amazing girl like this. Uh, and watch out what you wish for, right? Uh, it's kind of interesting because Hammer did a film right around this period called Lust for a Vampire, 
which was sort of loosely based on the uh, Carmilla stories, the classic stories. And uh, it was almost exactly the same situation where a beautiful young blonde actress named Jutta Stensgaard, Jutta Stensgaard, uh, played a vampire who had fallen in love with a mortal, a writer, I believe, and uh, was torn the same way. It's the same kind of push-pull of, please, uh, look what you've done to me. Uh, you know, I, I, I have feelings I've never experienced before, but stay away from me because I am dangerous. Uh, you know, we... we uh, we think about those kinds of stories and we're always, at least I was always drawn to them. When I first saw this episode, I saw it over at the house of Pete Perella, who uh, was a fellow who uh, produced a fanzine, published a fanzine called Tempest uh, around this period, which was a rather primitively produced fanzine, but I did some art for it. And he invited me over, me and, and Mark Perducci. Uh, Mark Perducci and I had written Pumpkinhead. And we went over to his house and uh, we watched both this and the following episode. And we were very, very impressed. We said, oh my goodness, is Night Gallery finally coming into its own? By the way, it's the death of Betty, obviously, uh, which ushers in a commercial. God's eye view, in a sense, judging Gideon. And again, there really is this, this sense of he's kind of on trial. Uh, what did he do? It's an interesting scene here because he feels regret. He's, he's, he's uh, I mean, as has been said before, he's a kind of a made-up character that's convenient for the plot to pull things together. Uh, but, but David Carradine is giving uh, more to it. And um, we see a certain regret. He's angry at the world, and he sends people to their death kind of in this metaphysical way. But he's not all bad. And uh, he sent our protagonist, the psychiatrist character here, uh, in because uh, he annoyed him. His disbelief annoyed him. And this is important because without hitting you over the head with it, uh, it is important to the plot as reimagined for Night Gallery um, that our protagonist be a man of science and not a man of faith, as I said before, as to where this is going to be going. And uh, by the way, we, 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 we should talk about a couple of things here that I haven't mentioned. And one of the most important things I suppose to, to mention is um, the cinematography by Lionel Linden. Lionel Linden, uh, 1905 uh, to 1971, he died at age 66, was a kind of legendary cinematographer, particularly at Universal. Uh, he did all kinds of amazing stuff. Uh, I think he won an Oscar for Around the World in 80 Days, and he shot The Manchurian Candidate and Grand Prix, and, you know, in, in, incredible, incredible work. Um, and in terms of fantasy films, he shot uh, Alias Nick Beale, which is an amazing horror noir, Destination Moon, Conquest of Space, um, and classic episodes of Thriller, The Pilot, Twisted Image, The Hungry Glass, and uh, the classic episode Pigeons from Hell. And he was no slouch even with the humorous side of things with seven episodes of The Munsters, and including the, the, the first episode, Munster Masquerade, which was really well shot. His final gigs were actually uh, Ritual of Evil, which was the second uh, evil film to star Louis Jordan as Dr. David Sorrell. And uh, he won an Emmy 
uh, Best Cinematography in 1970, and then he won another Emmy uh, a year later with uh, Vanished, which was a uh, two-part made-for-TV movie, a very uh, ambitious project. And then he passed away. So he had been, um, you know, the main cinematographer on Night Gallery, doing some amazing work. And, uh, you know, he, he worked right up until the end and was awarded for his, uh, for his great talent right up until the end. Uh, of course, he was also known as kind of a pain in the neck. He was a curmudgeon and kind of drank quite a bit. But there you have it. Anyway, we're now at a very, very key dramatic point in the story. I mean, this is an automatically compelling situation. These people are being torn apart emotionally, and it's a credit to both actors that we really believe their love. I mean, you know, they kind of just met, and over the course of a couple of scenes and some well-written dialogue and a hell of a lot of good acting, we believe that these two beings from different worlds are truly in love with each other. What's happening here is that Mildred is begged to be released, and the only way she can be released, as she explains, um, earlier in the, in the story, when Pierre had been uh, talking to the David McCallum character, he explained what happened, that years ago, this farmhouse was stormed by the locals and burned down, and the inhabitants, uh, the mother, father, and the daughter, were, were burned alive or destroyed, whatever, and yet there are the remains of their graves are still there. So she basically begs him to, uh, you know, say this prayer over, over our graves and you can bring us release. You can bring us the peace. If you really love me, you'll do it. And he says, I don't have a prayer book. Fine one, she says. Uh, of course, he's a man of science in this incarnation. The original story, he was a clergyman, so it wasn't a problem. But it was a smart change because we get that snap at the end. We also get this amazing reveal that we're about to see which is obviously set up by her looking down for a long time uh, in this back and forth scene so that when she raises her head and our camera moves in, we see those red eyes, which of course were mentioned earlier as one of the signs that someone is a werewolf. Uh, wonderful electronic music here for, for the chase, uh, you know, in, in, in general. Uh, Mr. Glass did an incredible job. Uh, excuse me, this it wasn't Paul Glass, this is... Uh, uh, the other composer, but incredible music and works so, so well. I'm sorry. <laughs> Glass did the second episode we we're watching here, so please forgive my confusion there for a moment. Uh, here is the big scene. And notice the shot, that particular wide shot when they were running in long shot, because we're going to see it again uh, a few seconds later. These are obviously the mother and father dogs, the bad dogs, the dark dogs, or were dogs. But, uh, and again, the unfortunate day-for-night photography, which, uh, you know, was always a bit of a problem. Serling hated it, but there wasn't much they could do. Uh, we're back to that same shot, but to the rescue, like the streak from heaven, uh, is the daughter dog, if you will, is Mildred, which is the name of her character. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like Lassie gone supernatural, I suppose, for a second. Director Charlotte Swark had complained, by the way, I, I, you know, about the dogs not being as ferocious as they should be, and that was apparently some problem. But they did manage to get these shots with some wonderful angles and some really effective editing. You know, we, we, we get the idea 
and the emotions come through. Of course, you know, we're completely with the characters now. And when Mildred in dog form comes to the rescue, we go, yes. <laughs> uh, it's Oliver Nelson is the composer. Please, please forgive me for that. Uh, and his music will, will return here. Um, as we reach our conclusion, this is, again, where the payoff comes from changing the character, because McCallum, the man of science, must now read from this prayer book in order to bring uh, eternal peace to these people, and, of course, particularly to this woman that he has fallen in love with. And there's a challenge here, because as she told him how to do this, she said, you're going to hear a lot of barking and a lot of horrible sounds, but don't turn around, just finish the prayer. I always felt director jean Soir could have gotten a little bit more out of this. He relies completely on his actor, and of course he's got a wonderful actor, and, and pushing in for the dramatic effect, uh, you know, anyway, the moment works because we, you know, he's been established as a guy who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but he has to do what he is doing. By the way, director Jean Swark was a huge movie fan. I mean, just like all of us, right? And, you know, in the earliest stages of video collecting, he had his VHS and would tape movies uh, uh, and cut out the commercials and do the same thing that we used to do. So the love of, of film and classic movies is certainly part of his, uh, his entire background. And... Uh, this is kind of interesting here, you know, uh, uh, the ending is uh, almost like Vertigo, where the character, this is why I mentioned uh, director Jean Oates-Swork, uh, uh, who again did some of the greatest episodes in, in the series, but here, like uh, Jimmy Stewart at the end of Vertigo, he, his hands are up and it's like, what happened? It's all gone. In the original story, when the character was a clergyman, there was closure. Um, this is an evil place, monsieur, he is told, uh, but we best quit it. It isn't evil anymore, he says, the clergyman Weatherby answers, staggering toward the road. I brought them peace, Pierre. So in the original story, it ends with closure, uh, which is perhaps better for the romance. Uh, it was decided uh, here to end with the, with the quizzical bit of business. Anyway, um, we are now into our second story, which uh, is an amazing story. Uh, based on a classic tale that was not only unusual for Nike, I mean, it's a very, very, very strange story, but a compelling story and a story that has gripped everybody's imagination. Um, it's a short one. It's only 16 minutes and 8 seconds. Uh, Silence, Snow, Snow, Secret Snow is based on a short story by Conrad Aiken and uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning National Board Award, was the U.S. Poet Laureate from 1950 to 1952. And his personal background has so much to do with this particular story. Uh, at, when he was 11 years old, he heard gunshots, and it turns out his father had just murdered his mother, and then the father turned the gun on himself, and Conrad discovered this. So, with that kind of background, uh, it makes perfect sense to write a story like this about a boy who is losing his sense of reality and kind of descending into madness. These characters uh, that we're seeing here in the schoolroom are in the original story, the, the little girl 
who is right in front of him, uh, it's suggested that she's taking an interest in him. He's a preteen. Uh, so in many ways, he's a normal boy. He had had a normal life. Uh, and then some strange thing happened to him. Uh, again, we even look at his room here, and these are the trappings of a normal boy. There are cars, there are planes. It's established, uh, the character's name is Paul, by the way. It's established in the story that uh, Paul was good at math, he liked geography, he, he was interested in exploring the world. But something happens to him inexplicably. And the connection here with the mailman walking and everything is the beginning of uh, hearing the footsteps steps less and less as the mailman comes because he imagines that it's snowing more and more. Uh, and the snow eventually will envelop him. Here in the classroom, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, this little globe was used. Uh, considering that the tale is narrated by Orson Welles, I mean, what can one say about Orson Welles? He was ideally suited to narrate a sensitive story like this. Uh, I should also mention, I mean, anyone can look up Wells's history, Citizen Kane. He was a great, great innovator, both on Broadway than on Hollywood, in Hollywood. Uh, but around this period, he narrated a Name of the Game episode called The Enemy Before Us. It was in 1970, a couple of years before this, and did the same thing as he's doing here. Uh, his voice uh, was bringing this kind of incredible sensitivity to the experience. Of course, we really uh, should mention the young actor who was playing Paul to begin with, uh, Jarabes Parra, uh, who uh, was born in New York in 1960, and uh, he was a very, very effective child actor. He became most famous for playing young Kane in the Kung Fu TV series a couple of years later that amounted to about 47 episodes. And like so many other child actors, he kind of had trouble transitioning into adult roles uh, and finally left the business. But he's wonderful in this. And um, we have to talk about the man behind this episode, who is director uh, Gene Kearney. Uh, he uh, did his, oh, this is the second version of this story that he did. He did his own black and white uh, uh, short film for CBS back in 1966, which is currently available for viewing uh, on the web. And I really suggest that you look at it. It's quite wonderful. Um, Night Gallery gave him this opportunity to kind of improve what he had done. And um, what he had done originally is damn good to begin with. It's kind of interesting to compare the differences, and I really, really suggest that you do. And uh, he did a lot of, uh, uh, Gene Kearney actually wound up doing quite a few uh, Night Gallery episodes, eight of them actually, Miss Lovecraft Sent Me, Phantom of One Opera, The Devil Is Not Mocked, House With a Ghost, uh, Keep In Touch, We'll Think Of Something, The Painted Mirror, The Other Way Out, and Finnegan's Flight. Uh, so he was, uh, clearly a key force at uh, on the Night Gallery series. Uh, yes, Paul Glass has done the music. We must, we must say uh, that the music and the narration are really key to this working, uh, as are the wonderful actors that we're looking at here. Um, that's Lonnie Chapman as the father, uh, and that was Elizabeth Hush as the mother. Of course, we're back now in school. But let's talk a moment about Lonnie Chapman, a uh, prolific character actor. Uh, he really came out of the, the stage. I mean, he was in the original comeback, Little Sheba. 
Uh, but then he, he kind of made it into movies as a character actor, East of Eden, Bigger Than Life, uh, The Birds. Uh, so he, he did quite a bit of work. The father figure here as presented and the mother figure, uh, this isn't rebel without a cause. I mean, this child is having problems, but it's not because uh, 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 his parents are particularly bad parents. Uh, they may not be the greatest parents, but they're but they're fine. As a matter of fact, the mother, it's pretty heartbreaking if you think of a woman who is going to be losing her child, uh, you know, and one could understand gradually as they see their son uh, degenerating and, and losing uh, touch with the reality uh, that they're becoming more and more concerned. Of course, this story is now widely viewed as a kind of a poetic exploration of autism, but it's more than that. And by the way, we do see, even though he's a disciplinary and there is some negative with the father, there is also kind of a warmth. So the filmmaker was careful to try to maintain the correct balance here. Uh, you know, I should also mention, just on a, on a personal level, uh, we all know what it's like, uh, particularly those of us who are film fans or fantasy film fans, you know, we... We want to escape into our own world. Uh, the whole notion, the cliche of pulling the covers over your head when you're in bed to escape something that's scaring you. Well, you go into this protective room, you know, you, you put the covers over your head, you look about and it's all dark and comforting and warm and you somehow feel secure. Well, I'm gonna mention this to say this is something that we all do. Uh, we all do need to escape the things that disturb us or frighten us or whatever. Of course, a few seconds later, we'll pull the cover off because we'll start to suffocate. Uh, but some people can pull the cover off. Uh, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, again, as a kid with parents who always argued, I, I needed to escape into film and into comic books and all of these things. And that was also, of course, true with my writing partner, Mark Carducci, who I've mentioned. And I'm going to take this to the next level here and, and jump into this and mention I've never really spoken about Mark's suicide before, but uh, Mark and I always would talk about that special place we could go to, our love for science fiction, fantasy, and film, and all of this kind of stuff. Those poor civilians out there didn't have that, and we do. All of us who, who are into this know what I'm talking about. And when Mark got sick toward the end, I couldn't get him to go to that place anymore. He needed to find a darker place. All right, enough of that. We see a very tender scene with the mother. And again, the little girl is in here to just show that uh, this boy had a future. This boy had everything going for him. It's completely inexplicable. As a matter of fact, at this moment in time, the teacher is almost trying to catch him saying, you were daydreaming. But he answers her. His mind is solid. Um, it is never explained the power of the piece that we never get into. What is it that has caused Paul to turn away from reality? Uh, reality is offering a lot for Paul. Uh, it's, it's, his parents are, are, are decent enough. He has a loving mother, clearly. Uh, he's a smart kid. Uh, little girl kind of likes him. Uh, what, what turned him off this way? And it's never explained, nor, nor should it be. Um, both from the autism angle, but also from the deeper meaning uh, of, of the symbolic meaning of, of what's going on, of how life can be so arbitrary. 
you know, I think of other films and other stories that have explored this kind of thing. Uh, what comes to mind, maybe more than anything, is uh, uh, The Curse of the Cat People, which is this wonderful Val Luton-produced movie that Robert Wise directed about a little girl who, a beautiful little girl, who is also turning off to reality more and more and more, and no one around her can quite figure out what's going on. Uh, this is a darker work, because where this story is going isn't going to provide a nice tied-up ending, although Curse of the Cat People is quite a wonderful film, and I also, despite the title, and of course I had mentioned Cat People when we were discussing the last story, uh, about a woman torn between her predatory instincts and her love, well, in this sequel, um, I had nothing to do with that. It was really about a little girl who was just disconnected from reality. We see the joy that he feels with the snow, and we ask ourselves, what is reality? What is important? Um, uh, we insist that our children be a part of this world and take part in the struggle, but what if they just say no? Uh, it's all very interesting. Uh, other films that have explored this sort of thing, I also want to mention, you know, I mean, even distantly, Steven Spielberg's E.T. kind of deals with it. But let me draw your attention to a 1969 Peabody Award-winning TV movie called J.T., which is about this little African-American boy in the ghetto who is also totally turned off to reality. Um, it's a beautiful film. By the way, that bit with the icicles there was also something that um, uh, the director did in his original black and white version. Uh, and he repeated the notion of the dripping, which is a wonderful effect. It, it, it caught, it made the, I mean, listen, the people at Universal did an amazing job uh, turning the street into this winter wonderland. By the way, the actor here as the doctor is Jason Wingreen. And uh, he, uh, was born in 1920 in Brooklyn, yay, died in 2015 at age 95. He's a TV veteran that um, started in the mid-50s, and fans of TV science fiction are going to remember him from The Twilight Zone. Uh, he's the friendly conductor in A Stop at Willoughby. Um, he's one of the sweaty sufferers in The Midnight Sun. Uh, and he even turns up uncredited in The Bar. That was one of the hour episodes. And in The Outer Limits, he's an alien operating the Obit machine in one scene. And uh, also the poor dad who was forced out the window by Mr. Zeno in the special one. Uh, and of course, he was in all kinds of other TV shows, The Invaders, Green Hornet, The Sixth Sense. Um, and Night Gallery, he was uh, also a, another Night Gallery episode. He was a reporter in The Nature of the Enemy. And uh, was in 25 episodes of uh, All in the Family as Harry Snowden. No relation to the Harry Snowden that appears in Fear No Evil and Ritual of Evil. And then also Archie Bunker's place. He's very good in this. Uh, this is a particularly chilling moment, pardon the expression, uh, as he's descending, de degenerating more and more, and the parents are getting more and more uh, unhinged about what's going on. Uh, there's a great moment where, and again, I, I love how the director is using all the things that the boy is fixating on and using them as a kind of trigger into the fantasy world. Really wonderful point of view shot. And every, every shot in this, you could, you, you could tell the, and this was clearly, you know, Gene Kearney's most impressive uh, moment on the entire Night Gallery series was this episode. It was clearly a labor of love. This is chilling. 
this little little laugh he gives and the mother reacting, that might be the most horrifying moment in all of fantastic television. It's simple, it is real, it's when the mother realizes, oh my God, he that little laugh upon, you know, and that is in the story. Okay, so uh, the writer-director was smart enough yeah. to catch it. We have this interesting moment now with the dad, which have led some to believe that, hey, his parents don't understand him. Well, no parents would be able to understand something like this. Uh, you know, we're only human. Uh, nobody is born perfect. And when your loved ones uh, begin to lose it, you begin to lose it. Now, is that justification for the little rough moment uh, that he gives him here? Maybe not, although I've seen the father on the wall and do something similar. Again, this is the final retreat, and uh, this is, in a sense, the big special effects moment in, in the film. It's really, really fascinating to compare this to uh, the filmmaker's original black-and-white version of the film and how he duplicated some shots and reworked ideas. Just fascinating to see how an artist can develop and, and, and change and, and improve upon his work. Uh, as we see here, Paul is just absolutely in, in, in heaven, pardon the expression here, uh, as the snow seems to envelop him from every angle. But that euphoria will soon be cut short very dramatically and very tragically, I suppose, by the appearance of, of all people, his mother. This is the person who brought him into the world, who arguably loves him more than anyone. And the suffering that we're seeing here, Elizabeth Rush is the mother, is wonderful. She did tons of TV work, uh, The Untouchables, Perry Mason. This is a, an incredible performance. I hate you. What could break a woman's heart more? When we say I hate you sometimes almost out of reflex, we're sort of saying I hate myself. I hate myself for whatever mess I'm in, and whoever is with me at the time that I'm acknowledging that I hate myself, I hate you too. It has a broader meaning here too, because he's hating reality. This final shot, the, the filmmaker pretty much duplicated what he did in the black and white version. We push in, slowly go out of focus, as this dark shadow finally envelops him. Are we to assume that he's going to be dying? Well, he's dying in terms of being part of this world. And that's whether you're physically dying or just dying because you phased out, you are no longer part of the experience to be shared with everyone. Anyway, I thank you so much uh, for uh, allowing me to be your host on this. I hope you enjoyed the commentaries, and I'll be joining you soon uh, with other episodes of Night Gallery. Thanks for listening.